This morning we continue in 1 Peter chapter 2, and I invite you to turn there very quickly. We have transitioned now uh, for several weeks from the theological side of Peter's discussion in 1 Peter chapter 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2. We have established who Jesus Christ is and who we are in Christ. We have looked at him as the capstone, as the chief cornerstone that all things of the law, the prophets, of the apostles built towards, uh, and that that's the lays the foundation. Jesus Christ is the capstone that now the balance of the building must conform itself to. And so we find ourselves in that condition. Peter then takes that information and that theology of who Christ is and who we are in Christ and how we get from who we were to who he wants us to be. And now he wants to introduce that into our relationships. And this is the second major theme of Peter. Uh, There's three mega themes throughout here, and we're going to deal with this one uh, for some time, as Peter does. He takes a great portion of a pretty small book to talk about our relationships. Uh, Certainly, this is premised upon our relationship with God. We know that. And we have seen that in chapter 1, chapter 2, that we have a responsibility towards his word. We have a responsibility in conduct to receive that. Uh, that we are the benefactors of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we are the benefactors of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that when we come into a right relationship with God, it affects our relationships with one another, and that we cannot isolate one from the other, that we cannot say, well, I, here's over here in this compartment is my relationship with God, and now over here in these compartments is my relationship with my family, with my neighbors, with my coworkers, with my government, and, and on down the line. Rather, what we find is that the foundational relationship with God embraces all other relationships and transforms them all. And so we are called to bring them all into submission to our relationship with God. And that is not an easy task. And perhaps that is why Peter is taking so much time to develop that for us in in this chapter and the one to follow is to help us. And Peter's not the only one to do this. Paul has done this extensively. James does this. John does this. To talk about our relationships, one with another, both within the church and without, among the world. And so we have looked at our relationship within ourselves, the battle that is there between the spirit and the flesh that we began with. And we saw that several weeks ago. Last week we talked more about our relationship with the world and what is our responsibility there that we have a responsibility before them not only to communicate Christ in terms of our message of, of the facts of their sin, of Christ's coming, and of the offer of salvation, but to live an honorable life in front of them, in that thus uh, giving evidence of our faith to them, that when we go out from this place, out there is where we should live more godly, not less. And somehow we have confessed founded that, and we come in and think we should live spiritually among church people. We talk differently, we act differently here, uh, more spiritual, more Christ-like, and then we go out there and think we can live and act like the world, when it should be uh, pervasive. We should be living godly in every environment. If there's any environment to let down your hair and be yourself, quote-unquote, it's with family, and this is your spiritual family. This is how we deal spiritual needs, is when we identify them in each other. And if we're always wearing a mask, (laughs) um, I mean spiritually, uh, before each other and not showing who we really are, then we can't minister to one another. We talked about that last week. We come now 
into a very different category of relationship. And we're going to take several weeks on this uh, for several reasons. One, because there is an enormous amount of scripture that I want to go through with you. Uh, There's no way I can go through the dozens and dozens of examples, the direct instruction. I I just can't do it, but I'm going to try to touch on a lot of it and hopefully uh, jar you a little bit in your study on a personal level to investigate these things further. The other reason I want to take some time on it is because of the circumstances of this past year and and, uh, going back into not only the events around the hysteria, uh, the COVID hysteria, but also about the events around uh, elections that don't go the way you think they should go, uh, and government out of control, uh, seemingly, and we see this incursion into what we have grown accustomed to having a degree of liberty. And so because of those circumstances and how different pastors and churches have responded, and I believe have both abused both sides and are imbalanced in this, I've, what I've been hearing and, and reading, uh, I wanted to spend an extra time on these and go through some of the passages that they are uh, using poorly to establish either that we completely cooperate with the government or we completely oppose the government. And we want to have a very different uh, Uh, perspective. We want to have a biblical perspective that doesn't come to God's word and want to say, here's what I want to find there, but rather we go to God's word and say, let it instruct me, even if it moves me away from what I uh, have my personal opinions about. And hopefully that's always the way you go to God's word. Uh, Not to confirm your opinions, but to transform them into those of God's. And so we are picking up in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to read through verse 17. Remember that verse 17 is our summary verse of this section. It is the verse that summarizes all the relationships he's talking about. So verse 13 says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And we are now going to be moving into that last phrase, honor the king. Remember, his summary is not in the same order that we have in the in the relationships that he has listed here. We're going to be moving into uh, the economic relationships later on. We're looking into the familial relationships. We're going to be looking into the ecclesiastical relationships. These are all covered by Peter in this little book. And so he is just, he, but he's going to start in this very, he started very, very personally in your personal battle between your flesh and your spirit. He then went way out there to talk about your relationship with the world, with unbelievers, and now he's going to start narrowing it down. He's going to narrow it down, narrow it down. You might say, relationship with family is, is with my church is narrower than family? Yes, and we're going to talk about that as we get there. But we're going to narrow it down. So he begins with government. And again, he wants to center in on this word honor. We talked about being honorable last week in our relationship before men, that we're going to treat them with honor, and we are going to be honorable people, which means that we are going to be, have full of, we're going to be full of integrity, uh, we're going to be trustworthy. Uh, we are going to be faithful. All those kinds of things, which 
However, the world understands those things is what we want to demonstrate to them. And so how does my employer, we're going to be talking about that later on in a month or so, how, what, what do they view as what is honorable? What do your neighbors understand to be honorable? What is, your, what is your extended family consider to be honorable behavior? Well, we want to portray that to all of them for God's sake. And that's going to be a key phrase here. And so for the Lord's sake, we're going to do these things. That is uh, not because they work out well for me, because in fact, as we talked last week, oftentimes it's not going to work out well for you on the short term. But I'm going to do it because it is part of my ministry of thanksgiving to God for all he has done for me in Christ Jesus. This is the motivation. I'm not doing it to make friends out there, nor am I doing it to make enemies out there. Similarly, within my family, within our church, uh, at the workplace, rather, I am doing it because I want to further the kingdom of God. This is what it involves being in the, for the Lord's sake. So we come to the concept of government. And let's do a quick overview of a biblical understanding of government. And then, hopefully, our relationship, and then I want to look at some examples, and we have lots of of direct instruction uh, that we can delve into as well. Uh, most of the pastors out there are going to, Rev to Romans 13 uh, and talking about submitting to government. We have this passage here that many are using, and we want to have a good balance. And that takes time and thoughtfulness. And so I can't just hurry through this. So let's talk about government and God's view of it, and then our relationship to it and our responsibilities to it. We recognize that government ultimately is an instrument of God. Um, Peter says so here. He describes it as saying that they are there um, because of this is the will of God. The will of God is for us to do good in relationship to those in authority over us. That is what his will for you is. Because he is the one who has established those authorities. And there's no authority except of God. And this is in Romans 13. We're going to be getting to that probably next week uh, more so. And so we understand those authorities are there by God's divine appointment. Now is government always that way? Has it always been that way? And certainly in this scheme of government that we have today is very different than what Paul was under. is very different than what... Uh, the Israelites were under in their liberty in their, when they were their own nation and ruled themselves. And we know that God's design is not for any of these. The God's design for Israel's government was where he ruled through the priesthood and that he spoke to usually a man, whether it be Moses, Joshua, whoever, uh, Samuel, and he would speak to them, they would speak to the people, and thus God ruled you. He was your king. Uh, and so we have this form of government that God wanted for Israel. And, of course, Israel enjoyed that for some time. That doesn't mean that it always went great for Israel. If you read through the book of Judges, you can't miss that fact, right? That here in the midst of uh, uh, God ruling, being your king, uh, speaking through the prophets, speaking through the judges, really the judge and, and the leadership that you have there, either people accepted or rejected it. And we find that over and over again, they kept going into error. 
They kept rejecting God as their king, and they wanted to go and worship and serve idols. Worshiping and serving are, are the words used. They worshiped and served them, which means that they not only made them their God, they made those idols their kings. They served them instead of serving the living God. When we talk about Jesus Christ, one of the terms we use for him is the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that we serve him. And so Christ is his messianic title that we recognize that he has delivered us. He's our deliverer. He's the one who has saved us. We worship that. But Lord is that title of kingship, that he is the one that we serve. So we worship and serve Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Israel rejected that. And finally, um, even though uh, they are blessed under Samuel, and, the word, and not a word that Samuel spoke fell to the ground, the Bible says, uh, they rejected it. As Samuel grew old, they, 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 older, they said, we want a king. We want a king like the nations. Well, now we discover that here's God's design, now here's the nation's design. And when we look at forms of government, overwhelmingly all of these are the, the design of ungodly men. And that's every form of government. I know you believe that our form of government is of a different ilk, that it is somehow God-blessed. Um, and it, I don't find it in Scripture. Uh, the only form of government that God has endorsed is where he sits in the throne as king. Now, God did permit Israel, against Samuel's better judgment, uh, against Samuel's desire, oh, please don't do this, but God says, no, give them what they asked for, uh, which tells you a lot about the nature of God. Um, if you want to be rebellious toward God, he will let you. He will give you what you ask for. You want your own way? He'll let you have it. Um, but he knows that when you go your own way that there's a penalty, there's a price. And he tells Israel, you want, your, you want kings like the nations around you? Here's what's going to be. He says, Samuel, you warn them and you tell them he's going to take your children, your sons. He's going to take the best of your flocks and herds and horses and listed all. He's going to tax you and he's going to have every right to these things. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to sons for the military, daughters uh, for his harem. You're gonna, you're, he's going to take these things. He has a right to them. And I want you to understand that from the very beginning, when Israel said, we want a king, God says, okay, I'll give you what you want, but understand that if he is the king of you, he has a right to claim on these things that you call your own that really belong to me, your God. This is very foreign to us because we're Americans and we have individual rights. Uh, but God says, no, once you say, we're gonna, we want this form of government over us, now he has a right to these things. This is the foundation of understanding things like military service. This is the foundation of understanding taxation, whether you're represented or not. Please understand, there was no representation in the uh, government of Israel, was there? Could the king tax you without representation? Yes, of course. God said so. Kind of blows out the argument of our founding fathers, doesn't it? 
No taxation without representation. Blah, 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 blah. Read your Bible. That's their right to not only tax your goods, but your very family. And so we come into this, and God says, this is what you want? I'll say, here's, but I'm going to say, here's one parameter. Here's the parameter that God put around their new government, where they said, we want a king like the nations, is I pick the king. You don't get to pick the king, I pick the king. God reserves, even in the context, you want to reject me as your king, and you want a a human king like the nations around you, I'll give you what you ask, but there's one limitation, that is, I pick the king. And hence, Samuel goes out, and he is charged with this responsibility of finding a king, and and God leads him, and we find Saul hiding over there in the baskets, and, and they have to drag him out there and anoint him king. That was God's choice, and he was taller than everyone else. He was hands, all these things, he had all the advantages, and God says, I'll give you someone you can look up to, literally. There's your king. And he fails, and he says, Samuel, this guy's failed. He's not obeying me. Um, and it's not about how he treated his people. God wasn't going to replace Saul because he was hunting David. God wasn't going to replace Saul um, because of how he treated or maltreated the people. It was how he usurped a role that wasn't his in relationship to God. So please understand that God's judgment on kings has more to do with their relationship with him than their relationship to the people. We think, well, if they maltreat people, God should judge them. But we don't find that to be the case in Israel. In, in the understand that government, God says they have a right to treat you. And that's very foreign to our kind of thinking. Uh, but we, Saul usurped some things in his relation with God and offered sacrifices when God says, you're not the one to offer sacrifices. You cannot come in and do that. That's, a, that's your limitation. And so, of course, Samuel goes out, re, anoints his replacement, and then we find that because of David's heart, uh, not again because he treated all of his people great, he murdered one of them to take his, uh, his wife. Um, so his relationship with his people uh, was not the basis of positive or negative, of judgment or of blessing. It was his relationship with God. And David uh, had a heart that followed after God. He still committed sins and he still abused his people a bit uh, and numbering them. And what did God do? You numbered them against me, then, then I'm going to have them suffer for your decision. And so when we look at this, what is the form of government? Well, people choose. Okay, you choose your government. I reserve this for myself. And even into the, into the New Testament, God is the one who establishes authority. Now, we jump forward uh, a f- many hundred years from Christ, and we find a nation coming on the earth that says, we choose who rules over us. And we understand that to be our form of government. We choose who, who serves over us. And again, we have an abhorrent situation where we have people, the masses, taking on for themselves what God has reserved for himself. Now, we view that, well, and, but we all say, well, God blessed it, and, and I don't know that that is true. 
Um, because Satan can bless things too, by the way. So if God only blesses in wealth and health and prosperity, then we have to account for every wicked person that's very wealthy today. Right? So we know that Satan blesses. And thus we have taken upon ourselves something God reserves for himself. Now is this just in Israel that God says, I am the one that sets up kings and kingdoms? No. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 13 that God says, I set up all authorities. Just as he established the authorities within the home, so also does he establish the authorities within government. And so he establishes them. And we're going to look at some relationships there. We have a lot of them recorded for us in Scripture. Now I'm back, I think. Sorry for that interruption. So this is the foundation of and the backdrop of government. And we can applaud ourselves for our advanced concept of government, but we really find that it is an ungodly form, that we are really snubbing the nose at God's statement that says, I will select the king. And we see him in reference to pharaohs, to Caesars, uh, throughout the earth, that he will raise them up for his purposes. And it wasn't just Israel that he rose, raised them up. It was in Assyria. It was in Egypt. It was in Babylon. It was in Persia. It was in Greece. It was in Rome. All through history, we find God saying, I will raise them up. I will raise them up to fulfill my purposes. Whether those purposes are judgment, uh, whatever they were, they are there to accomplish my purposes. Does that mean that God is desiring them to do evil? No, but he has raised them up and to put them in that place. And we have been divorced from that concept of divine right to rule. That, and, and if you go into monarchical countries and you go in the past, you will, they will talk about the divine right to rule. What that means is that God has given me the right to rule. And we find that even of some men that are of questionable character, but yet they had divine right to rule. And we have rejected that concept. Think about what we have done in rejecting the concept of divine right to rule. We are rejecting divine. That's the word that we are rejecting. We are saying we will grant you the right to rule. That's the only difference between our form of government and a monarchy. A democracy says we will give you the right to rule. A monarchy says God gives me the right to rule. Think about that for a little bit. When we talk about Saul usurping a role that God says isn't yours, consider what our country has done in its relationship with God. When God says, I am the one who set up kings and kingdoms. And not just Israelite kings, but all kings and kingdoms. Pharaohs, Caesars, uh, all of them, and kings. And so this is the concept of government, is that God gives it to the king, and now as the king chooses others to rule with him, that uh, we recognize that that authority, while it is channeled through the king, is also God's authority to the, even the governors. And the governors would be a very regional form of governing. And so we find that we have a responsibility to them. And the instruction here is submit yourselves to every ordinance. And that word ordinance, you think of, well, that's a law. 
it, it probably should be translated better, an institution, every, every form of government. Every, submit yourselves to every form or governing institution of man for the Lord's sake, whether it's a king or down to the governors. And so when we, so now we have focusing on the word. So we know what government is now. We know a little bit of the history of that. And maybe we can start transforming our thinking to be a little more biblical and to consider our ways a little more carefully before we just say the Constitution is the next best thing to the Bible. Uh, so we go into scriptures and we find that uh, we have res- the government is in place by God's authority uh, because mankind needs it. It needs it to contain and to help us. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later when we get to the next verse. Uh, what's its purpose for us? And so we find a word here that's called submit. And submission is a word that we find variously used by people. And so I want to develop the concept of submission too. What does it mean to submit? And really to help us do that, I want to take you in and use examples to help you walk through this concept of what submission is. That submission is, and and this is, because this is going to be an important word, right? Because we're going to use it with reference to wives, to their husbands, and to submit to one another in love within the context of our church relationships. This is a pretty important word. If it's the foundation of so many relationships, we better get it right beginning with. And so we have this concept of submission. And that is an attitude of heart and mind that wants to do right toward those in authority. It recognizes their authority and it wants to do right towards them. It has a heart and mind that seeks to do right towards them. That's that word honorable. I want to be honorable towards those in authority on me. And so we find it in relationship of children to their parents. We have two words that we interpose, don't we? In the, in the commandment, the first commandment of the promise. Honor your father and mother. Right? That's what the commandment actually says. Honor your father and mother. We get to other passages, it says obey your parents. We understand that honoring and obedience are interposed. They are, they, are, they are closely linked together. And submission needs to be in there as well. The concept of submission is that I recognize your authority over me. As a child, as his parent, I'm going to honor that authority. And the result of honoring that authority is to obey. But it begins with the concept, honor and submission begins with that concept. Between the honor and obey is this thing, I'm going to submit to it. So I can recognize the authority and still rebel against it. I can dishonor it. Can't you? And that will always lead to disobedience. Okay, rebellion will always lead to disobedience because it's dishonoring authority. And this is very subtle. We need, it's not semantics. It's very important that we get these, understand these concepts. And so when we rebel against authority, we are dishonoring the authority. And the Bible says we are then dishonoring God. Correct? You're not sure. You're thinking about it. Because God established that authority. And so when we honor our parents, we are honoring the ones that God has put in authority over us. And if we honor them, we are going to submit to that authority, and that looks like, that, that, that observation of that is obedience. That's the action point of the attitude of honoring. 
And in between there is the decision to submit. Now we're going to take that and we're going to bring it into our relationship with government. So the Bible takes great effort to help you honor authorities in your life. That wives should do that towards their husbands, just as children to their parents. Uh, and within, we're going to talk about within the church as well, that we honor those that have this responsibility. But in terms of government, we are to honor the authority that they carry. And that's why God's work calls us to be thankful for those in authority. That we render thanksgiving to God for those he has placed into authority over us. Now, don't think that everyone who wrote this had good kings over them, good governors, good authorities above them. Don't think that you only honor those that are godly. That's not the commandment. The command is that we honor those in authority. We honor the role they have, and the, the way we often communicate this, we honor the office, right? The office of the president. Well, you should just give honor to that because of the very office of it. And that is that concept that it doesn't matter who fills that because we come to a conclusion that if God is the one that's responsible for those that lead over us and to his purposes, that we honor that authority, that place of responsibility they have over us. And the action, that's, that's the attitude, that's the attitude. Between the attitude and the action is a decision. This is an act of the will now. I'm going to choose to submit. That is, I'm going to not only recognize the authority, I am going to humble myself before that authority. That it is my authority. Now, I've preached on this many times over the history, oops, over the history of our church, all the way back to some other presidents that I heard a lot of Christians say he's not my president. And I have always challenged that and said, you just don't have the right to say that. Who are you? Is God not your God? Be careful what you say. Because if we recognize that this office has been established and that God is the ultimate director of who are the kings and pharaohs and Caesars, uh, presidents, prime ministers, that, that, these, that God is the one behind these authorities, and we dishonor that by saying, that's not my authority, you're really saying, God is not my God. And we've spoken extensively about that in the past. We just don't have that right. Uh, we have, rather, a responsibility to honor. That's an attitude. Submission is a choice now built upon this attitude. Because I honor that authority... I am going to choose to submit to that authority. And that submission, when it takes action, looks like obedience. I'm going to obey those. Now, that's the word submission. But submission has a parameter. What is that parameter? Who has the highest authority in your life? This is the question. You have lots of authorities over your life, do you not? Okay, all of our children are gone. Oh no, Carlos is here. There's supposed to be more children here than that. Where are those Gonzalez kids? They should be in here. We have authorities 
over us. So children have parents, wives have husbands, we have authorities within the context of a church, you have authority at your workplace, you have bosses, supervisors, owners, whoever you're responsible to there. We have local government, state government, national government, and international government. I know you don't recognize international government as having authority over you, but it does, um, especially for the last 20 years or so, 15 years ago or so. And so we have all these authorities over us. What happened? But we recognize that Jesus Christ is our Lord. So now we have the highest authority, that we are answerable foremost to God, that he is that greatest authority. So what happens when through this, all these authorities, that we have a divergence of instruction, of command? Uh, That's the problem that we all struggle with. That's what the churches are dealing with today uh, and have been for a year. This is what our church has done in struggling with this. And how do we honor authority and yet not lead to the action of obedience if our attitude is to honor that and we want to submit, how does it not come into obedience? Because when two authorities tell you two opposite things, you must disobey one of them. Is that not logical to you? <laughs> so if you go to mom and she, sa- and, and she says no, and you go to dad and he says yes, now you have a choice, don't you? And you know your children play that game, because my children played that game. All of our children play that game, don't they? That's why moms and dads should talk a lot about raising children. And, and one of the first questions you ask is, what did your dad say? <laughs> my wife used to do that all the time. What did your dad say? Because she knew that they had already talked to us. And if they hadn't, they needed to. And if they didn't, she would. And because we recognize that you both have authority in their life. Well, similarly, we have all these authorities in our life, and we need to go and say, well, what does this authority say contrasted to this authority, and which, which one carries the most weight? And it's not about whichever one I like. It's not the, the solution is, well, I get to pick which one I like. All right? That's a sinful child's self-indulgent choice. But a person who is truly honoring and submitting to the authorities that God has established, it is a, a, a spiritual decision. It is, I evaluate who has the greater authority. So if my supervisor tells me one thing to do and his supervisor tells me another thing to do, I know my responsibility. Don't I? My responsibility is to listen to the boss's boss. Is it not? Oh, you're thinking about that. Chain of command. What about chain of command? The boss's boss has already broken chain of command and coming directly to you. Now you have a higher authority calling upon your obedience. In fact, you're answering to the authority's authority. And so if the general comes to you and you're a private and he says, do this, and then the president of the United States comes to you and says, do that, and it's different than what the general says, guess what you have to do? Because he's the commander-in-chief. You do what he says. And you recognize that that act of obedience to him will look like an act of disobedience to the general. So the understanding, the, the foundational understanding of this, if we understand what government entails and who, what God's relationship is to it, when we are called to submit 
to governing authorities, we recognize in the very context of this that it is about doing good. The governor is supposed to be there to punish evildoers and to praise those who do good. That's what they should be accomplishing if they are doing the work of their higher authority. If they're doing divine work as a government, it is they are punishing evildoers and rewarding those who do good. Fundamentally, that is God's purpose for them. That's really the objective. And so we, Peter points this out. This is what God established them to do. To get rid of evildoers, to give society civility, to give us order, to, to, to stave off the chaos of men doing what is right in their own eyes, and to deal with evildoers, so that, and then to give room for those that do good to be honored. And we find that that requires sometimes a very strong hand. We can sit and complain about strong men who rule countries. And because of our American sensitivities driven from a constitution where we have usurped God's role, we go and we say, well, that's strong man. And we have made complaint against strong men, and then we have removed those strong men as a nation, interfering in the government of those other nations. And what is their end result? Chaos. Why? Because it takes strong men to keep evil men in line and to keep them subdued. They know what is required because they know who they're dealing with. And so, yes, we've, we have deposed and destroyed several strong men. And it has not been a benefit to those people. It certainly has not been a benefit to the Christians in those communities. And we have seen that over the last 25 years that we depose strongman after strongman in Islamic countries, and we find out that those strongmen were there to keep these radical Muslims in line and in place and, and stopping from destroying Christians of all people. And once we depose the strongman, chaos breaks loose, and guess who gets destroyed? Number one. The number one people group in Iraq that got deposed and we got rid of Saddam Hussein were the church. In Syria, in Lebanon, in Libya, Every single one of these places, we wipe out the strong man whose purpose was to subdue and control evil men. Were they evil from our perspective? Well, they were violent, certainly. But they were, had a benefit, and every Iraqi Christian will tell you that it became intolerably dangerous for them to be in their country once the strong man was gone. Because the churches were able to meet then. Christians were allowed to function. Because the strong man was in place to do exactly what 1 Peter 2, verse 14 says is their job. To punish evildoers and to praise those who do good. So, can the strong man be wrong? Yes. So what do we do? Well, let's look at some biblical examples, and we have a lot of them. You have so many of them out of, out of Scripture, um, it's overwhelming, okay? Let me just list a few of them out, out okay? Abraham. Abraham, yeah, sure. He had to deal with the uh, king of Egypt, Pharaoh. He had to deal with the kings of the valley uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah. He had to deal with Melchizedek, 
We're going to examine some of his relationships in two weeks. Uh, we can look at Joseph and dealing with Pharaoh and Potiphar and those relationships. We can go to Moses dealing with Pharaoh again. Interesting that Israel wouldn't leave Egypt unless Pharaoh gave them permission. Did you ever think about that? They obeyed Pharaoh the entire time. If Pharaoh says you don't go, they didn't go. Never thought about that, did you? They obeyed the authority of Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh kicked them out and said, get out of here, that they left. They left it up to God. Moses left it up to God to work in Pharaoh. Israel submitted to Pharaoh and submitted to their masters. Even when Pharaoh made their life harder, they complained to Moses and complained to God, but they didn't complain to Pharaoh. They obeyed. Yeah, so we could spend a lot of time on that one. Um, we can go right through, and so where are we at? We're at Moses. Uh, we can go right through. We can talk uh, later on about relationships with Assyria, uh, particularly a young lady who had a wonderful relationship with her master, who was a Syrian soldier, who was a leper. So we have lots of examples of how do we relate to those in authority that are against our God. And then, of course, we have Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael. All laid out for us in the book of Daniel. And multiple occasions with multiple gods or multiple kings that we have interaction. Not only with Nebuchadnezzar and the effect there, but later on with Daniel, Belteshazzar, with Darius, with Cyrus. I mean, we have all of those. We have Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel and their relationship with Cyrus. We have all of these examples. We have even the prophets in dealing with the foreign Kings in Jeremiah telling the people what to, how to behave in Babylon when you're under exile under an ungodly king and an ungodly society. And we're going to be looking at Jeremiah 29. And we have all of these examples laid out for you. But I want to really go to one that is directly adversarial. And that is the book of Esther. You know the story of the book of Esther, do you not? I'm looking out, I'm trying to see if any of you... Uh, let's go to the book of Esther, it's in the Old Testament... And this is a direct adversarial relationship on multiple levels. Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. So you find Psalms, go back to Job, and then Esther's before that. Okay? And this is all about a relationship with, with Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes. And we find that we start off right away uh, that we are not dealing with Israel kings. We're dealing with, an, with a ruler of an empire. We have no indication that he is a righteous man. In fact, we are introduced to him by very unrighteous activity. Very unwholesome activity. We find him coming in the third year of his reign. He has a feast. He has all of the Medes and Persians there. He has all of these authorities. He's... he's parading all of his goods and everything. And this isn't just for a day or two. It says for 180 days. That's six months of doing this. And then he has a feast lasting seven days and um, at the king's palace. Decadence everywhere. That's all it was about. They're serving drinks in gold vessels. Uh, and we go on and on and... and then, of course, he wants to bring Queen Vashti out there, and, of course, that's going to be a humiliating thing. She, she does not submit to him in his drunken state and in his desire to do 
to dishonor her, really. Uh, and, and she pays the penalty for that. Does she dishonor him? There's no evidence of that. But she disobeyed him, or, and that's a very subtle problem. Is she rebelling, or is she simply saying this isn't a proper thing for us to be involved in? Uh, we don't know that. And uh, the evidence is, is that because the king starts to regret his decision, and because it was driven by his underlings instead of his own heart, that it was a bad choice. And that's why he regrets it. He regrets what he did to his queen. And we find him now in this situation, and again, he's listening to advisors that are advising him very poorly. Well, if you're missing one gal, just replace her with a few dozen gals. And the call goes out to bring these women in. What does the king have authority over? Your sons and your daughters. Well, is that true for Jewish people in exile in Persia? Yes. He has authority over your sons and daughters, and in this case, your nieces. And in they come to find a suitable a queen that will honor, that, that, that will satisfy and, and, and be acceptable and pleasing to the king's eyes and life. And of all the people that are, that are swept up in this, among them is Esther. And, uh, and of course Mordecai, who is in, involved at some level in the city gates and has some authority there, uh, sees us all hand and, and recognizes we have responsibility. They, ha- they have this right to take the best of our flocks and our herds, our cattle, our horses, of all of our resources, and even to take our sons and our daughters. They have the right. No complaint. Try to be godly in that environment. And by the way, Daniel and Hananiah and and Azariah and Mishael did the same thing. Recognize that authority. Honor it. They have the right. We will submit to that as far as we can. But we have an adversary. And that adversary, Haman, is on the scene there. And we find the, the contention that is there. But recognize that there's an authority above Haman. And that is the king Ahasuerus himself. And above Ahasuerus is God, authority. And so as Mordecai and as, and, and is doing right, he's going to do good to an ungodly king who is doing despicable things. He has maltreated his queen. He has, he has, he has done all these horrible things and drunkenness and, and much like Daniel with Belteshazzar being drunk and drinking out of the vessels of the temple of God. Can you imagine how affronting that was to Daniel to have to walk into that environment and, and see the vessels of the temple of his God being, being malused by Belteshazzar at a banquet feast and then looking on the wall and having to serve his king by reading that message. Not because he liked the message, but because that was his responsibility to that authority. And so while we can look upon this king and say, well, this is a horrible way of treating us, uh, no, he has that right. And so far, that right is going to be honored and submitted to and obeyed. 
And when we go through the book of Esther, and um, unfortunately we don't have a couple of chapters here that are in the Septuagint, and we have a prayers. We have some prayers listed in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the book of Esther that isn't in our English Bibles because we're not built off of the Septuagint. Uh, we're built off the Masoretic text. And so we have a couple of prayers. Those prayers are saying, God, you are the greatest authority. Can you intervene? Now remember, Haman had managed to manipulate his king to such a degree that he had issued an edict to slaughter every Jewish person in Persia. This is, this is the enemy, right? This is the enemy of God's people. Does God care? Oh yes, he cares. But he waits for his people, and his people didn't, didn't fight gathering up the virgins, didn't, didn't, weren't against him. Mordecai served his king, even in that thing. And when there was a rebellion being fashioned and people were going to try to kill the king, he exposed it. He honored his king, even when his king was despicable. He honored him. He protected him. He, he, he exposed this, this horrible plan to kill the king and to rebel and to overthrow the government. He exposed it. But then it went beyond the limits of submission. There's no evidence that they were going to fight the edict of the king. Their answer was to pray. And they prayed for God to intercede. And God did intercede by granting Vashti an audience. And this is very important. We, we miss this. When she goes to her king, she doesn't have the right to do that. And in fact, she takes her own life into her own hands by going on and seemingly it could have been interpreted by the king as her dishonoring or disobeying him and not being submissive. But she comes in and humbly requests an audience with the king. And he has pleasure in that, brings her in, and, and then he has another, then a meal, then another meal. And we have this all laid out for us. And very gradually she warms up and, and, and seeking that audience where she can lay out her request to the king above Haman the one who wants to do them evil. The king really didn't want to do them evil. He was just convinced of it by another evil. And you know the rest of the story, that God put it, made it so that the gallows that were raised for Mordecai became the gallows that Haman were, was hanged on and his family. And Mordecai is elevated by God giving a king a restless night and, and giving a, a, a reader to read some things to chance upon a page where Mordecai's endeavors have been done but had never been rewarded. You see, it was all premised upon Mordecai doing what was right, but yet the government that he was doing right towards was going to destroy not only him but all of his people. And the answer was not to rebel against the government and kill the king, kill Haman. Was it? It was not to take up arms. It was not to go after him. It was not to gather up all the Jews and say, let's defend ourselves. No, it was let's pray. Let's pray to the Lord God Almighty. 
We want to submit to it as far as we can. And if that means that we are all going to die, then that's God's judgment on us somehow through the, this king. But we want God to intercede, and God does intercede. And now we have the Feast of Purim, celebrated by Israel ever since, of God's deliverance. This is the relationships that we want to see that if we have a recognition that we are called upon to do what's wrong and Daniel and his, and his three friends and, and uh, Nehemiah and all of these take all of this and they give us such clarity of understanding how to engage them. Is it subtle? Is it, is it cautious? Yes, it's not easy, but it's clear. We honor and submit and when we come to the necessity of civil disobedience, where we say, I honor you, but I just can't do that, penalize me as you see fit. This is what Daniel did, was it not? Isn't this what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is how, you, how we recognize their name more? Isn't this what they did? We cannot bow to that idol. O king, live forever, but we can't do that. We, we'll serve you, but we can't bow to this idol. Do to us what you must. That means get thrown into the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar's anger did that. And God intervened and delivered them. But whether he delivered them or not, the men says, let it be known to you that this disobedience is not an act of rebellion. Same thing with Daniel. I, I, I can't stop praying because you issued an edict saying no one's allowed to pray. And by the way, that's exactly what has happened to the church this year, this past 12 months. We have edicts saying you are not allowed to do what God tells us to do. That's exactly what happened to Daniel. An edict was issued, you can't pray to any other God but to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says, well, I'm still going to keep praying. Yes, I understand you might get thrown into a lion's den for that. But it's not dishonoring, it is simply saying there's a higher authority than you. And now you've made it two I have to choose between. Do I obey you or do I obey him? Do I obey man or do I obey God? And when that comes down to it, we want to submit to authorities, we want to do good, because authorities are there to praise the good and to punish the evil. That's why God has them there. When they fail to do that, we are called upon not to rebel against them, but to rather keep doing the good. Does the world going to hate you for keep doing the good? Yes. Is it going to punish you? Sometimes. But they're going to have to answer to God, not to a militia for that. We keep doing the good. And we have biblical example after biblical example of that. And I've gone really, really late. Oh, that we would follow this instruction. Submit to government, but recognize your submission to God must precede that. And that's why in verse 17 it says, Fear God, honor the king. It's the fear of the Lord that moves us to do good. We honor the king as much as we can and we submit to him as much as possible, but our fear is not of the king's sword because we're doing good. If we're doing good and the king says stop doing good, we're going to keep doing good and just say punish us, O king. 
Live forever. That's what Daniel said to Darius. Oh, king, live forever. I'm in the lion's den, but God's taking care of me. Oh, king, live forever. He honored the king even while he disobeyed him. And the evidence of that is by willingly receiving the punishment the king wanted to hand down to him. He didn't fight that. He says, yeah, I disobeyed. Find me, punish me, prison me, whatever it is. You know, take off my head, feed me to the lions, throw me in the furnace, whatever it is. Same thing with Esther, Mordecai, do to us what you must. Um, we're just going to lay this out here, trusting in God, and we're going to keep obeying. Well, we're going to investigate this a little bit more in the next week or two. I hope you won't grow dismayed over it. There's a lot of information here, as I shared, and we want to pursue some of this to some of its finer points of, that Peter talks about here, about doing good, even in the midst as we try to honor the king. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word. And we pray you might give us wisdom to be harmless as doves, but wise as serpents in uh, this world. Uh, not to our praise and not to our comfort, but for your sake, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the, for the sake of your kingdom. And Lord, for the benefit of the lost, including those in authority over us who need you desperately. And even though they have rejected you and don't know you, don't recognize you, Lord, we know that you can intervene, that you can change their heart, that you can convict them, that you can humble them. We've seen you do it in times past. You can do it today. And so, Lord, you know the needs of your people. You know the times that we live in. We pray in thanksgiving for those that have said we will just continue to serve the Lord and we will not um, fight our government, um, but neither will we um, disobey our Lord. And Lord, help us to have that balance. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.